Pastor John has already indicated, we're beginning a new sermon series through the book, which is probably uh, entitled in your Bible, The Acts of the Apostles. And uh, we'll be saying more about that in a moment, as Pastor John has already said something about that. But before we read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word to us, let us turn to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than the purest honey. As we now approach your holy and errant infallible word, prepare us to receive your word. We grant that our hearts and minds might not only be open before you, but also might be humble and teachable. In order that the good news of your love would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but to respond with wonder, faith, and love. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from the first chapter of Acts, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Some of you might be thinking, we are never going to get through the entire book of Acts at that pace. But as we begin looking at this book, it is appropriate to start with a little background. We learn in the very first verse of Acts that it is a second volume written to someone named Theophilus. And we aren't told who Theophilus is, although there are a lot of theories about that. Everything from Theophilus being a code name of a ranking Roman official in the government to not being an actual individual at all, but rather a symbolic name to represent many people. And you see, Theophilus means lover of God or loved by God, so... It's not hard to argue that the book is written for all those who love the Lord. However, Theophilus was also just a common name during the period in which the book of Acts was written. And so, most likely, it is an actual individual bearing this name who simply is unknown to us today. Anyhow, this verse doesn't just tell us who the scroll was written to, it reveals to us who it was written by, albeit indirectly, since we actually have the first book, or former book, as some translations put it, in our New Testament. We find the introduction, we find this introduction at the beginning of this first book, insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those 
who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Some of you might recognize this as the opening verses of the gospel according to Luke, who was a companion of the Apostle Paul. And he tells us in so many words at the beginning of his gospel that he has set out to give Theophilus an account, an accurate historical account of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ in order that Theophilus might have, as he says, certainty concerning the things he has been taught. Luke himself was not an eyewitness to these things he writes about in his gospel, but he has been with those who were eyewitnesses. He has spoken with them and gotten their stories, and he has compiled that which has been shared with him into an orderly account. And he has accomplished what he set out to do, as we are well aware of after finishing a sermon series through the seasons of Advent and Christmas, using his gospel account of the nativity of Jesus, which appears in no other gospel as it does in Luke's gospel. But Luke did not complete what he set out to do with his first volume as in finishing what he was trying to accomplish. So he wrote a second scroll to Theophilus in order to tell him the rest of the story as the late Paul Harvey used to say, picking up where he left off in Luke 24. He wants to share what occurred after the ascension of Jesus. Luke is intent on providing a history of the origins of Christianity, and the intention was that these two volumes would be taken together, although we might not always immediately think of Acts as volume two of Luke's writings because this second volume has been separated from the first volume in our Bibles. There's a reason for this. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were bundled together and circulated together pretty early on in, the, in church history. And when this happened, Acts got separated from Luke's Gospel. That, by the way, doesn't mean that Acts doesn't serve a really important function in its placement in our Bible as it's arranged today. I think we will see as we move through Acts the way in which it is the link between the gospel and the apostle, as has been described by others. That is to say, it has a way of holding together the gospels with the writings of the apostle Paul. And these two groups of writings make up the majority of the New Testament. And Acts plays a critically important role in linking the two by telling the story of Paul and his missionary journeys and giving the necessary background to provide context to understand Paul's letters more fully. And as, as has been noted by scholars, Luke's historical record is exquisite matching with perfection other extra-biblical records of the time, Luke is a very good historian. And having been a companion to Paul, Luke was himself 
an eyewitness of some of what he records in this second volume, as we will see him ever so subtly including himself with second person plural pronouns at points. Anyhow, from a historical perspective, we could look at these two volumes that Luke has written very simplistically with volume one of Luke's work as the story of Jesus Christ, his birth, his earthly ministry, his sufferings and death, his triumphant resurrection, and his ascension. And volume two as the story of the church of Jesus Christ from its birth in Jerusalem through its spread and sufferings by persecution to its triumphant conquest of Rome 30 or so years later. A two-part history of Christianity, the narrative of Christ and the narrative of the church. And many do look at Luke's volumes in this way. But if we were to view Acts in this way, it would be to miss what Luke is telling us theologically in the first few verses of this book. This is very important. We need to be clear about what Luke is communicating. Luke isn't setting up two parts of this church history as Christ in his church. Rather, he is revealing to us the continuing work of Jesus Christ in the world through his church. Look at what Luke says here in the introduction of this second volume. He tells us that in his first book, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. There is a key word here, began. His first volume gives us what Jesus began to do. This very intentional use of this word doesn't indicate a cessation of Jesus' work, but a continuation of it. Luke is telling us that he intends to now reveal to us how Jesus has continued to work on earth even after he accomplished his salvific work on the cross, even after his death and resurrection, and even after his ascension into heaven. Acts, then, is an account of all that Jesus continued to do and teach by the power of his Holy Spirit in and through his church. Therefore, as Pastor John has already noted, even as we call this book Acts, which is a shortened version of the title from the second century, the Acts of the Apostles, many have rightly noted that the title really isn't altogether accurate description of what we find in Acts. So maybe we should think of Acts not as the Acts of the Apostles, but rather as the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in and through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because this is what we find in Acts. It is the record of the continuing words and deeds of Jesus during his ascended ministry. And even while the apostles might seem to take center stage in this book, Luke is determined to show that what is happening is not man-centered, but Christ-centered. What we are seeing in this book is God unfolding his plan of history. So perhaps we look at that as a subtle difference, but it is a significant difference. And what we need to see as we make our way through Acts is the dominant presence of the living Christ, alive and at work in and through his people by his spirit. And Luke wants us to see this from the very beginning of the second volume. As a well-known theologian, John Stott, so aptly put it, Luke's first two verses are extremely significant 
It is no exaggeration to say that they set Christianity apart from all other religions. These other religions regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. Luke says that Jesus only began his. And true, he finished the work of atonement, yet that end was also a beginning. For after the resurrection, ascension, and gift of the Spirit, he continued his work first and foremost through the unique foundation ministry of his chosen apostles and subsequently through the post-apostolic church of every period and place. And the ascension of Jesus is what John Stott has called the watershed between the two phases, earthly and heavenly ministries of Jesus Christ. So Luke ends his gospel, his first volume, with what? The ascension of Jesus Christ. And he begins his second volume with what? The ascension of Jesus Christ. And I hope we don't miss what Luke is trying to stress here in the ministry of the ascended Lord Jesus. Too often, all of our attention is on Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection. It isn't a bad thing to focus on this. It is by way of his death that our sins are forgiven and we are set right with God. And it is by way of his resurrection that we are offered the hope of resurrection to eternal life ourselves. We don't want to downplay the significance of these truths. But if we act as though this is the end of Jesus' ministry, if we miss that Jesus has not only ascended to the right hand of God, but he also continues to minister from his throne of power, then the very real consequence is that we can begin to live as though Jesus is a figure of the past and not one who continues to live and reign in the here and now. My sermon has one point this morning. It's this. We worship and serve a risen Lord who continues to live and reign at the right hand of God the Father, who is king over an eternal kingdom, and who continues his saving work and ministry of building his kingdom on earth through us, his church. That's it. So we mustn't think or speak of Jesus only in the past tense, as though all of his ministry was limited to his time on earth some 2,000 years ago. Nor should we act like his ministry is limited to the past. He is alive and well and at work in the world today. And our role as his people isn't to try to simply make do until he returns. Our role is to figure out what Jesus Christ is up to in the world, to discern the ways in which he is continuing his redemptive work in the world and how God's plan of salvation is continuing to unfold in history in accordance with his will. And we are called to get in on this action, to participate in God's work as this covenant people. The church then needs to quit asking what would Jesus do? That movement years ago, the WWJD movement, while well-intentioned, was a theological tragedy. Its goal was to encourage the imitation of Christ, to think about what Jesus would do in specific situations. But the practical result was that Jesus became viewed and treated as nothing more than a dead moral figure. And nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. 
So the church needs to quit thinking, speaking, and acting in terms of the past in this regard. It needs to start thinking, speaking, and acting in terms of the present and future. The church should be asking, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing right now in the world around us? What is he doing in and through us? And how can we discern these things and participate in this work? This is what Acts shows us. It's about the church recognizing that Jesus is alive and that it is in him that we live and move and have our being. It is about the church responding to his spirit at work and keeping in step with the movement of his spirit as he builds his kingdom here on earth. And Jesus wants his church to make this connection between ourselves and his kingdom. Jesus uses his time before his ascension to this end. Before his people can go out and proclaim his kingdom, then they need to understand it rightly. Before they can go out and live as a citizens, then they need to be reminded of what he had taught them regarding the characteristics of his citizens. Luke tells us here in the third verse that Jesus presented himself alive to them, meaning the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Dearly beloved, this, there is a lot packed into this one verse. Luke has just identified for us in verse 2 that the apostles were the ones Jesus had chosen. And it is significant that these apostles were not self-appointed, nor were they appointed by any other human being or committee or organization. They were directly and personally chosen and appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And they had been appointed by him in the beginning of his ministry in order that they might now be uniquely qualified to bear witness to him. And we're going to see later in the first chapter when Judas's successor is chosen that this man must also be qualified in the same way. He must be one who had been with Jesus in his earthly ministry. But there was another important qualification. It wasn't just that these were individuals who had been with Jesus during his earthly life. It was also that they had beheld the resurrected Christ. This is what set them apart as the apostles. They had seen, touched, heard, eaten with the resurrected Lord Jesus. Luke stressed in his gospel that Jesus had appeared to his disciples following his resurrection from the dead. And this is what Luke is stressing in this third verse of the first chapter of Acts. If they were to be his witnesses in the world, which is what he calls them to be, the time they spent with him after the resurrection was critical. The entire Christian faith is set upon the foundation that Jesus Christ came, was crucified, and was raised from the dead. Everything. Everything is based on this foundation. There is no Christian history without this foundation. And you see, the history Luke is presenting to us is a history of salvation. This was his theological goal in writing his gospel. And this is his goal in writing Acts. He wants to show that salvation has been prepared by God, bestowed by Christ, and freely offered to all people. It is 
salvation that has been planned and promised for centuries by God and that Jesus Christ is the one in whom alone the salvation was to be found in accordance with the prophecies and promises given in the Old Testament. And Luke knows how freely and widely God offers this salvation. He is the only Gentile contributor to the New Testament. But God ordained that the good news of Jesus Christ be lived out and spread by his people, the church. So Jesus not only was raised from the dead, but he appeared to his followers in a way that overcame their doubts and fears. It was the resurrected Jesus who drew his disciples back together, the disciples who had been scattered at the time of his arrest and subsequent crucifixion, in order that they might then be used by him to spread the good news of the gospel. It could only be a risen Lord who could do this. There was no philosophy or moral teaching strong enough to draw these men back together and send them out to the ends of the earth. This was a mission for which they would face extreme opposition. They would have to, therefore, have unshakable faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Luke is stressing here the importance of these 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, that the risen Lord Jesus appeared to his disciples. And we shouldn't miss the importance of this time he spent with them. Just as Jesus had spent 40 days in the wilderness before the start of his ministry, this was their 40-day boot camp before they were sent out on their mission. It was time in which Jesus revealed to them the ways in which his life, his death, and his resurrection had been fulfilled, had fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. It was a time in which Jesus helped them recall what he had taught them about God's kingdom, encouraged them to commit themselves to live as citizens of this kingdom, helped them to see how God's covenant promises were being fulfilled in and through them. In short, it was a time in which Jesus could root them firmly in the objective reality necessary to be witnesses to God's truth and love found in him. As one biblical scholar stated, the objective reality of the resurrection was the ultimate proof of the amazing claims that the apostles were to make about Jesus. Acts then doesn't just jump right to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It isn't just the story of apostles who go out riding high on the wings of the Spirit. No, these men were first and foremost firmly rooted in the objective reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. With deep theological understanding of the kingdom that he had brought and was bringing. The promises he fulfilled and the ones that were yet to come in their fullness. The life they were called to live and the glory of God that they were sent forth to pursue. We don't want to miss. We don't want to miss this truth as we begin Acts. Dearly beloved, the church today is anemic. The church today is anemic. Because there are too many who bear the name of Jesus Christ who seem to be one thing or the other. Either they are orthodox in their beliefs or they are seeking to be filled with and led by the Spirit without any grounding in the truth. 
What this leads to are those who have a dead orthodoxy, knowing all about God's word without having actually experienced the resurrection power of the risen Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit, or those seeking to live spiritually without having any foundation on the objective reality as presented to us in God's word. Brothers and sisters, what Acts shows us is a people, is a people who are firmly rooted in the knowledge of Christ in his teachings, in his life, death, and resurrection, but who also are spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, guided by the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you this with great confidence. Dead orthodoxy isn't going to save you, nor is it going to lead anyone to Christ through your witness. No one is coming to Christ simply because you can recite doctrine flawlessly. But salvation doesn't come because you are seeking subjective spiritual experiences removed from the truth of God's word either. There is no real power in having spiritual experiences removed from the truth of God's word. There are spiritual forces at work all around us, and God's word tells us that not all of them are from God. And you can be just as dead chasing spiritual winds as you can be with theological head knowledge with no heart knowledge. And even more than I see dead orthodoxy, do I see professed Christians claiming a calling from God that is opposed to the revealed will of God in Scripture. And it isn't advancing God's kingdom one bit. It is working against it. We can look all around us and see those who claim to be evangelical, claiming to be following the Holy Spirit while living in complete ignorance to God's word, complete ignorance to who Jesus Christ was. Some of these individuals were among those who were storming the Capitol building a week and a half ago. And it's not working to win anyone to Christ. It's doing the exact opposite. What Acts shows us is that God isn't unfolding the history of salvation with either or Christians. God's work in the world isn't happening simply with those talking about a rolled away stone in a vacant grave, but with those who are living spirit-filled lives grounded in the truth of the power of the resurrection. And this postmodern world that we live in today doesn't care a lick about any truth claims with no spiritual power to back them up. I can promise you that. Nor does it need one more subjective spiritual experience removed from a deep knowledge of God. It has people like Oprah who can do that for. We need to see then both the theological depth that these apostles have as well as the fullness of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. They want to know Christ in him crucified as much as they want to keep in step with the Spirit and see what happens. I invite you, see what happens. The gospel spreads to the ends of the earth in the context of a worldly empire opposed to its teaching in one lifetime. And Acts will end not with some conclusive ending, but with a to-be-continued. God's plan of history is continuing to unfold through the church over the ages until the day when Jesus Christ comes again in glory, at which time every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we go through Acts, I pray that we would find in it a kind of vast 
treasure as John Calvin did. And I hope that we will be able to heed the exhortation of the great Martin Lloyd-Jones who instructed Christians, live in that book. It is a tonic, the greatest tonic I know in the realm of the Spirit. And to God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, grow in us a desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To not only know of Christ, but to know him personally, intimately. And knowing him, may we love him and be filled with his Holy Spirit, empowered to go forth in the power of his resurrection, to live lives fully pleasing and acceptable to you, participating in the work that Christ continues to do in this world. We use our study of Acts to this end, we pray. Use it to shape us ever more as individuals who live as citizens of your kingdom. Use it to shape us as your church, your bride, demonstrating to the world the great love that you have for us in Christ and calling others into this love. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, of Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.